Welcome to De Beautiful's Digital Book Tour, a place where writers who are publishing books during this pandemic still have a chance to read to an audience and share some information about their book. To discover more debut authors, please check out debeautiful.net. Today's guest was previously a corrections officer and wrote a book about his experiences called Barker House. His name is David Maloney. Even though the book is set in a prison, David says there are humorous moments. So just because this book is set in prison and is obviously going to feature very serious moments with a darker tone, it is a book worth considering reading right now, especially if you're interested in the justice system, private prisons, and the lives of correction officers. Here's my conversation with David Maloney, author of Barker House. Hey, David. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing fine, and thank you, Adam, for doing this. Definitely. Um, for helping out all the writers whose books are coming out during um, a pandemic. <laughs> it's kind of a really hard time to um, sort of um, celebrate something that I worked on for five years um, and not feel somewhat terrible about celebrating. Uh, but it's also, I think, I don't know, an important time for books too. Mm-hmm, I think yeah. we're all kind of we're, we're stuck at home, and you know, I think there's only so much Netflix one person could watch health, healthily. But um, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm doing fine considering. That's good. Yeah, and I, I agree. It is a, an important time for books to be coming out, especially with we don't know how long this is going to last, regardless of what people keep telling us. So, you know, it's, it's, we've never lived through something like this. Yeah. It seems to be changing by the hour. Yeah. If not the minute. So, <laughs> so your debut that you, you mentioned you worked five years on is called Barker house. Um, tell readers a little bit of what it's about. So this book is about, um, correctional officers who are working in a County jail in New Hampshire. So, um, each chapter is told through the point of view of somebody that works at the jail, whether it be an officer. Um, there's a chapter that's told from the cook's point of view. Um, and it's sort of just supposed to shed some light on what offices go through and sort of not just at, at work, but also what happens when they go home and when they leave work. Um, when I, I'm a former corrections officer, I worked at a county jail in New Hampshire for four years, and I felt like I lived two different lives during that time. I lived the life of the persona of the person in uniform, and then when I left, I sort of had to, to change back into me. Um, so I wanted to show sort of that difficult um, perspective from these characters. Sure, and I definitely want to touch a base on your history. But first, um, let's dive into a reading from Barker House. Take it away whenever you're ready. Okay, so I'm going to read the opening of one of the chapters. It's the only um, female point of view in the book, and she's a rookie. So um, her last name is Brenna, and she's being trained to work inside the property room where most of the unclothed search procedures or strip searches uh, take place. And because this is a co-ed jail, she's the only one on, on her shift that can, that can strip out uh, a female um, admit. So she spends a lot of time in the property room. 
Okay. This is from property from the start. Her mother used to restore old dolls, specifically American Campo dolls, Madame Alexander Amberg. One of her last memories of her mother, it must have been a Sunday afternoon, when she would invite Brenna to stand at the sink with her and watch her take the green out of a doll's mohair wig. It was such a careful process. The doll would be covered in plastic wrap so it wouldn't get wet. Each strand of hair was massaged in the soapy water, then brushed with a metal comb. She'd fill cracks, airbrush their faces, paint their eyes and mouths, so gentle, and her strokes clean. But then she'd scuff them. No one wants a doll that looks new, she'd say. The dolls were sent to her in the mail. She cared for them as if they were the owner's children. Brenna was tempted to play with the dolls, but it was her mother's work, and she wouldn't have dared. In this last memory, maybe the last before breast cancer took her, her mother made up a doll's face with charcoal eyebrows and magenta cheeks. And though Brenna couldn't remember her mother's face much from that day, that doll's face remained with her. Inside the property room, Brenna stood before a clown-faced junkie, pupils pointed down, thick red lipstick cracked and smeared, still groggy from whatever she'd swallowed or stuck in her arm before her arrest. The woman was young, younger than Brenna, who was 25. Hobson called her a whippersnapper, and she didn't think he knew what it meant. He might as well pat her head and give her a sticker. Nashua had scooped up six women in a, pro in a prostitution ring, and Brenna was sure to spend her entire break searching holes for bags. Fish hook your cheeks, Brenna explained, miming the action. Straighten up. I said straighten up. With your fingers. Fish hook. The new admit was nude, her skin bruised in all sorts of places, but the ones that stood out to Brenna were the deep blue ones on her armpits. She stumbled and caught herself against the brick wall, then leaned there. Behind her were shelves of bags, bagged and boxed inmate property, shoes, jewelry, clothes, suits dropped off by loved ones or good lawyers for court. The large closet-like room smelled like wet sneakers. Behind Brenna was a shower where inmates rinsed, like at a public pool. They'd dry off and get walked through the unclothed search procedure. Other than the bubble on Max, which was a boys' club for male officers to pack dips and nap, the property room was the only room that was not under video surveillance. Hun, you need to get this over with, Brenna said. Brenna took the few steps that were in between them, and she helped the woman stand up. I'm going to inspect your mouth. Then I'm going to bend you over at the waist and check you. Can you do this with me? The inmate nodded. Her dry tongue peeked between her crested lips. Brenna checked her mouth. She'd been working at the jail for a year, and she had learned much about people, how bad people's teeth could get. The inmates, the hookers and women with gangrene arms, their teeth could get rock-like, gravelly. Dr. McKeel, the county dentist didn't get paid nearly enough. The inmate's breath smelled like cigarettes. Brenna grabbed her around the waist with her left arm and pushed her into a, a bow with her other hand. 
The inmate let all her weight collapse in Brenna's grasp, and her arms hung limp. Brenna struggled to hold her up and spread her feet to get a stronger stance, then inspected the inmate's vagina and anus as respectfully as one could. Thank you so much for reading that. I want to start a little bit about your personal life and your history. Was being a correction officer something that was always the career path you were on? No. Um, so I went to college to be, I wanted to be a teacher, an English teacher. And I failed out pretty quickly um, in about three semesters. I lived with my three best friends from high school. and We all went to the same school. And no one really told us it was a bad idea. <laughs> and um, and it was a bad idea. So um, I went to work and I got a job as an overnight um, counselor at a mental hospital on um, a secured unit for juveniles. Um, so I basically just worked overnight and did their laundry and kind of did bed checks. And then uh, a lot of times in that in that work, people call out and, you know, they take their own, what we used to call mental health days. And so I would get mandated to work the awake shift during the day. And I, I was good at it. I was good w- with working with people. So within six months, I was a supervisor on, on the day shift. And I was only 20. And I, I wasn't, um, you know, I had no schooling in, in psychology. I had no experience. It was just kind of like, we need, a, we need a body and you, you show up to work. So here's the job. Um, and so that sort of led me into this path of working in security, um, you know, working as I, I call my, called myself a people manager. So I was really good at just getting people to do what they were supposed to do. Um, and that sort of led me down the path of working at, at, the, at the jail because um, this was in, I started in 2007 and um, all you needed was a high school diploma. Again, they just wanted a body. Uh, it wasn't a job, people. The economy was still pretty good then, and it wasn't a job many people were going for. So it was either people like me who didn't have um, college and people who were just getting out of um, the military or coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. So that, sort of, that was the makeup of, of the offices. And so when, once I started working there, it was a good paycheck. It was good health insurance. Um, I kind of bought into it. I, you know, I, it was plenty of overtime. I was 22, so I was eating up all the overtime. And, um, and then 2008 happened, and um, everyone was laid off, but the jail was full. <laughs> um, jails were basically profiting, especially the private jails, were profiting off of the recession. There was a lot of home invasions, um, drugs, um, robberies, you know. So um, I, then I just kind of got stuck there. So um, I stayed till about 2010, and then burnout happened. Uh, and I started thinking about, do I want to do 20 years here, or do I want to actually do what I set out to do and become a teacher? So I cashed in my retirement and went back to school. Nice. <laughs> I left. During that time as a corrections officer, did you were you thinking about writing fiction based on those experiences, or did that come later? That came later. Um, I've always written poetry, mm. and um, I so I was writing poems about working at the jail when I was there. 
but I wasn't showing anyone because again, you had to have this macho persona. And if I told my coworkers or anyone I was writing poetry, <laughs> that would have been sort of, um, that would have been mocked and, you know, I would have been looked at much differently. So, um, so I was kind of keeping it a secret, but I always had this notebook where I kept notes of certain, you know, incidents or inmates as characters. I mean, things people said that I'd never heard anyone say before. So I had sort of a running list of stuff someday in the right, um, when I was back in the right mental capacity to write, um, I would. And that sort of happened once I left the jail, about a year of just doing like my first year of college again, I started to have a nice distance between myself and that person to where I could finally be honest with the stories. And, and that's when I started writing and they just, I had so many stories, they just came out, you know, like create, I just had to get them all out of me. And then I had to sort of focus on how to make this sort of into like a novel. Mm -hmm. And, and with Barker house, you said like, you're going to make it into a novel. It does also read like, because it's 10 distinct voices, these different stories. Was this intentionally done to be a novel or was it ever meant to be short stories or how did the process go about? So it started as short stories. It actually started as these really short vignettes, like these three to four page sort of scenes. Um, and that wasn't working because I had too much to say about each one. And as a writer, just as how I write, I'm character first always. And I wasn't giving enough page um, space to these characters. So then I decided, okay, let's pick three or four and just open them up a little bit. And then that's where like Brenner came from, Mensa, O'Brien. And then once that happened, I noticed that uh, they were all sort of living in the same timeline. Um, and it kind of just happened organically. So I wrote the stories. I had about maybe 16 or 17. And then we decided on like 12 that would make it. Um, and then that kept getting cut down. And then they, the other ones started getting longer. And then we, we sort of found a way to, you know, I spent about, I don't know, six months trying to connect them all. Um, a lot of the stories happened concurrently. So it was kind of, this is, that was my favorite part of the process was making them all work, work together. I, 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 had, I had more fun doing that than any other, any other part. But I guess I call it a novel. I know um, some people calling it a novel and stories. That was something we talked about that sort of, um, like, what is this, right? And I sort of like to think of it just, it's a, it's a book, you know, it's, um, it's like what, what you make of it. I don't really know. I guess I'm just calling it a novel because no. that's what I've been calling it for the past three months. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, definitely. I mean, a um, book's a book. It, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it feels, everything feels cohesive. It's just, I know like a lot of people really like to be nitpicky. Like you said, like, it, it, are these stories, are these novels? Is it a novel in stories? In the end, it's a, it's one book, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's sort of like a, uh, like Jennifer Egan's A Visit, mm -hmm. a visit from the Goon Squad. Yeah. Um, All of Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. I'm reading Emily Nemen's book, um, The Cactus League. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, um, I don't know. I just kind of like the idea of a novel that's not completely uh, one character, mm -hmm. um, linear. I like the idea of playing with this form. Yeah. Uh, 
I think it's fun. I, I like to see what other people are doing, other writers are doing now with it too. One thing I loved about it was the different voices. Like you said, like you started them to be three to four pages, but you weren't giving the voice enough time to tell the story. Um, was there a specific story that you felt once you, or a specific section of the book, once you had written it, that it felt like, okay, this is, this is like the central piece to what Barker House will become? Yeah, I I think that would be um, Kingdom or um, Mentor's um, story when he finds the when he's finding the letters. Um, I sort of wanted to base the entire book around him. He was sort of the, the character I felt sort of struggled the most with the job, and sort of you know the failure of not being promoted and seeing others be promoted or. Um, having like a domestic life that just was bleeding into work or any other way around. So I wanted to build around him. And I think that he's like the sympathetic character and that, that sort of um, made O'Brien who he was and Brenna, who, who she was, which then changed Tully's um, trajectory. So even though Mensa only has one story, I feel like it's kind of the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. A lot of there's a lot of media about prisons and law enforcement, and I feel like a lot of it obviously doesn't get down to the truth of what happens in these jails, especially from the corrections officer's point of view. What's a big misconception you often hear people talking about when it comes to prisons and correction officers and inmates and the whole system? I feel like a lot of these shows and I've, I watched a lot of them and um, my wife always gets mad at me because I'm like, Oh, that would never happen. That would happen. She's like, can we just enjoy this? Um, But, um, but it's, I think a lot of what you see is that offices um, sort of get their rocks off, like making the inmates lives hell. And I feel like that, that is something I I rarely saw working at. no one wanted to really hurt anybody or to make their life worse. And that I, I feel like in, I remember being in the Academy in 2007 and one of the, one of the classes we had was how we should be with the public. So when we do visits and the public comes in, how we should be professional and nice. And um, I always thought about that. Like, how am I, if I have my uniform on and I go into Seven Eleven? Um, people are watching me, how I act. And I, I think a, a lot of times in these shows, the authors are just, are just mean. Um, and they're mean just to be mean. And that's sort of like the only thing that that they have going for them. And rarely do you see like these like sympathetic offices. Like something I struggled with the most was trying to hold back um, like my empathy for inmates because it would... I would have crossed the line, you know, um, they would tell me why they were there or how, you know, their mother's losing their house and they can't talk to her because they have no no money on the phone. And then I would let them out after lockdown so they could make their phone call, which is against the rules. You know, like next thing you know, you're, (laughs) you're trying to be human when you're not supposed to be. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's a struggle. And I wish, a lot of these shows would show or media would, would talk about that struggle more. Yeah. And the one thing I, like I thought was 
like at the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned you really want to show like the blending and the bleeding of their domestic life and then their work life, all these characters, because we're all human, no matter what we've done or perceived to have done, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really in the book. These characters were really three dimensional. Yeah, they weren't obviously because they're from your perspective and you know the truth of what's going on. And they weren't like, I'm thinking of just like, Orange is the new black off the top of my head, and it's like you're right. <laughs> These one-dimensional characters who are assholes just to be assholes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, that's, yeah. Oh, go on. Um, yeah, I was just, I'm just like thinking out loud here. It's just, and like another thing about the book that was really, I felt really good is like politics was left out of it almost. Like I know, like there's characters and like they make decisions based on what their beliefs are. But really, it's like you've just presented these lives and let the readers interpret interpret it. Yeah, the goal was to be sort of unsentimental. And um, I, I could have written a book um, as like an apology tour and sort of shown why offices do bad things and sort of say, like, we need to we need to understand why they do. But and I, I used to say and this was sort of pre-2016 when I was writing it that um, that this is this this is an apolitical book I'm not writing about politics but then I, I also thought that was kind of BS I think almost all art is, in some way is political and so I, I kind of I, I've thought a lot about sort of what my intention was with this book and I think it's just to shed a light on how how much this this system is failing both offices and um, incarcerated individuals. I mean, we were always pitted. It was us versus them. Um, I mean, that was told to us in morning muster, you know, just remember it's us versus them, you know, and it's kind of like, what, like, what are we doing? Um, So uh, that was something I've thought about since is um, these, even though these are character portraits of these offices, this is what, real officers struggle with every single day and um, no one's giving them the right guidance to deal with it. There's no tools. Um, there's really any um, on-site um, psychiatrist to help after you've seen someone hang themselves. Um, you know, the um, therapy lesson is the bar after work. It's not a professional talking you through um, like a life altering event you've just gone through. So I feel like the system is failing everybody because now they're carrying that baggage back to work every day and um i know uh correctional officer suicides are up this year um so it's just it's something that um even though this book i don't think i was trying to be political i think it's making a comment on the entire system and then this book is you and this book are really tied together because of your past you're probably one of the few people who could write a book like this and make it as honest and realistic as possible in the future what do you what do you want to explore with your writing so i just finished a draft of a book of short stories about the the area i live in the merrimack valley um along the merrimack river that runs um down from new hampshire into massachusetts and sort of the people that live along the river and so i was i spent so much time writing about the jail 
there's only so many ways you can describe a concrete wall that has nothing on it. And I was like, I just need to get outside of, of these walls. So now I'm, I was focusing on that, but I'm, I'm going to continue what I do. And um, even though that, that there's sort of, this is an issue book in terms of, um, you know, private prisons, private jails, um, a broken um, justice system, uh, it's still character first, I think. And so I want to continue writing stories just about um, characters and, and what makes, what makes them um, human and just keep, you know, the human condition is sort of my first, that's mm-hmm. the first thing I think about when I write a story. I always like to wrap up these like brief digital book tours with book recommendations. Uh, what are you, what are you currently reading or what's interesting you right now? So, like I said earlier, I'm reading Emily Nevman's um, the cactus league. I just finished Teddy Wayne's apartment, which is actually, it came out, I think three weeks ago. Um, which is, which is a really good book. And, um, I actually, I went on bookshop.org. I don't know if you've been following them. They're sort of picking up all of what Amazon's not doing right now and, um, helping out all the bookstores that are, that are shuttered up because of this. And so I just went on, um, a bunch of the indie books, uh, bookseller, like they have recommend new recommended reads. And I just, filled my cart with those so i'm really excited to just get all these books i typically wouldn't wouldn't have bought um because it's i want to help out other debut writers and um so i'm excited about getting a big shipment of books in the next week or two no i feel you this is i know like the world is in a really bad place but this is a great time to just try books that you wouldn't normally do like like maybe people who might not like prison books, they I think this book, if they listen to this podcast, they're going to realize it's about the people that just happen to be in a prison setting. Yeah, yeah, that's how that's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, and I know it's a weird time to be promoting your book, but don't feel ashamed. That's what you like. People need books right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I know I'm I'm living in between feeling gross about promoting, but also like, um, I don't want to let, just let this book die. I mean, I spent so much work and I think it's a really important book. And I also think people will enjoy it. It, it sounds maybe from our conversation, it's, it's how it's a very heavy book, but, um, there is a lot of humor in it and um, there is some bright spots. So <laughs> if people are afraid, this is just going to make you even more miserable. Um, I hope you don't think that's the case. Thank you so much to David Maloney for coming on and talking about Barker House. The book was actually supposed to come out on April 7th, but it's already out. It came out on April 2nd. You can get it from bookshop.org or your favorite local indie. Check out David Maloney at davidmaloney.com. Please visit daybeautiful.net. And I'm on social media at daybeautiful for all of them. I hope everyone stays safe out there. Please social distance. We're all in this together. Stay safe. Until next time.